morning. This is Ellie Newman, and you're listening to It's Relationship. My guest today is Andrew Fig Figueroa. Andrew recently graduated from Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts. For his thesis project, he wrote, produced, and performed a hip-hop theater piece entitled Mixed Race Mixtape. The show explores the formation of Latin identity in the United States. The perspective is autobiographical and showcases Fig's own ongoing struggles with developing a cohesive identity in the midst of a lifetime of funny, confusing, and sometimes frightening interactions growing up ambiguously brown in America. Andrew Figueroa is an artist and performer. He's an up-and-coming hip-hop artist, theater maker, and arts educator. He's the son of a Mexican father and British mother. He is the first U.S.-born member of his household and the younger of two boys. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you for joining us on It's Relationship. Yeah, thank you for having me. For starters, uh, do you prefer to be addressed as Fig or Andrew? I think a Fig is totally fine. All right, we'll go with (laughs) Fig. Great. we were talking a little bit before we started the interview, and Fig was saying he graduates next Saturday, and he's going to be speaking at the commencement. So he's yeah. busy, got a lot going on, and <laughs> and uh, a full life right now. Yeah. I, I want to start a little bit, uh, Fig, if you wouldn't mind, telling us a little bit about your hip-hop experience, uh, where that began and, and what it entails. Um, great. Uh, well... I remember the first album I got actually was from one of my aunts, Sarah, um, which was a Snoop Dogg album. And I got that when I was like 12 years old. And then from there, I just started listening to more and more hip hop. And um, actually, uh, I had a friend whose sister died when I was a senior in high school. And that's the first time I wrote uh, like a rap verse. But previous to that, I had been dancing and any kind of new uh, hip-hop style that came up from breaking to b-boying to turfing to crumping. I just like got on the got on the trend super hard and me and my friends would like always be dancing at houses. We put together like little dances to perform at parties when we were in like you know middle school and high school Um, and then it wasn't really until college that I started taking kind of performance and being an MC and a rapper as seriously as I do now. I had a group of friends that I met basically as soon as I got there and kind of egged me on to write raps, kind of like diss tracks at them. And they'd write ones to me to encourage me to write back and eventually started writing and then stay up all night writing. I go to bed and I like have a word or a line. I have to come back up at my computer and just keep on writing again. And um, it just kind of like came naturally, but also just I like found voice in writing. I was going to ask when you say you were diss rapping back and forth with friends, it sounds like it was a form of communication. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was... I mean, definitely. I mean, think about like hip hop and its origins. Um, there's a lot of communication between kind of MCs and artists, and and you know a lot of it too is. I think it's interesting thinking about like how hip hop culture has taken away from like physical violence and translated it back through like dance. If you think about crumping, which originated in Southern California, like the dance itself is kind of you know a lot of like very high energy movements, swings of the arms, stomps. And people, you know, who would get in kind of like any like uh, aggressive conflict or or like, you know, have beef with each other instead of fighting would just kind of like figure it out through dance. And I feel like it's the same way through um, rap as well. You know, you kind of calling people out on things or like, you know, uh, if you have any issues with them, you kind of call out, you know, in in poetry, like through the rhyme and through the words. And I guess with my friends, you know, we were just kind of ragging on each other for fun. And I think my, my friend's goal of it was they saw potential in me in my writing and kind of. Uh, 
performance you know as a theater maker and they wanted me to really start writing so they just thought that the best way to do that if they like kind of mess with me so that I would you know have to write back and that was kind of what I did and from there I've just been writing you know daily and and um when I was a uh I was at my third year of Hampshire starting my third year my mentor Joel Branner he gave me a book which is an anthology of hip hop theater pieces called uh, Place from Boombox Galaxy and that was the first time that I had really seen kind of like hip hop in the theater world and I, I started accompanying you know Outkast and Tribe Called Quest and and these other rappers I was listening to with Zell Miller the 3rd and and uh, Mark Muthi Joseph Aya De Leon these different hip hop playwrights and performers and my mind was kind of blown and at the same time my work as a theater artist and a hip hop artist which I always wanted to put together but kind of never felt that it would that work. it was even possible I, yeah, I was so validated with that book. And from then, I've just been kind of, you know, um, off on this kind of hip-hop theater work. And, and when you first started as a, as a young child, were you aware of the elements that made it appealing? I mean, it sounds now that you sort of analyzed it and you can see why it is so appealing. At the beginning, was it just something that just struck a chord? I, I think, yeah, it just struck a chord. I think a lot of my friends, people that I found, uh, were close to me and, and were important to me were, were it meant something to them so then kind of off of that it meant something to me and as well being like a super energetic and kind of like you know energy being all over the place with movement specifically like I found kind of focus in that and I think in writing as well I've you know I you, talk a lot and you mention you know. <laughs> in some of your uh, materials the hip-hop lens and yeah. the, what unique perspective do you feel like that provides and what is the hip-hop lens in your yeah. mind mm. Well, I think when people think about hip hop now in a mainstream conversation, um, it kind of comes off as superficial and and it only talks about kind of like these rappers that are, you know, kind of cussing and you know, all the time and they're talking about violence and drugs and whatever. But if we look deeper into kind of hip hop at its root and hip hop as a movement and as a culture, at least some of the morals they hold true to that is giving voice to those that have been neglected as well as offering a counter narrative to um, ones that have really been leaving out marginalized communities from its conversation, from its dialogue, from its history. Um, and with me, hip hop is definitely, uh, a form of education as well as a way to reimagine uh, space, reimagine identity, reimagined um, a history um, in the United States and really all over. I mean, it for me and, and I and just kind of from what I've seen and experienced with the communities I've interacted with, it really has given a voice to the voiceless. And I guess when I say hip hop lens, it kind of takes all the political and social aspects and um, kind of, I guess, yeah, the, the mission statement and, and kind of, initial goals of the movement and then uh it's seen through through that yeah yeah I yeah talk exactly. a little bit about your your prior work leading up to college and through college and leading up to this work as an Definitely. agent of educational and social change what sorts of educational positions have you been involved with prior to creating the mixed race mixtape um, the first time where I really got involved was uh, when a friend of mine who was putting a project in Holyoke, Mass., which is about 30 minutes outside of my school, uh, 20 minutes outside of my school, uh, he was working with middle school students. And I don't know if you know about Holyoke, but it's the, uh, one of the main Latino-populated cities in the country, um, mainly Puerto Rican. Um, and he invited me to come and co-facilitate facilitate an after-school arts program called Walking the Tightrope 
which is, it was an arts program, basically uh, having the students design in different forms, uh, or design, a, sorry, create a shoe design in different forms. So that's ceramic, painting, paper mache, you know, kind of all different ones. Um, and at the very end, he got a grant to buy all the participants uh, blank white Converse shoes. And by then they had perfected the design and could put it on their shoes and got this special like ink and, you know, and that was kind of my first engagement with that. And then from there, I just like wanted to be involved more and more. Every year at my school, we have this thing called a day at Hampshire where students from Holyoke uh, come to Hampshire and kind of, you know, are a college student for the day. They go to a class and a lecture and a student run workshop and they work with a professor, eat in our dining commons, talk about financial aid. And I mean, just with all those type of things and, and understanding what this space has been so important for me and, and especially for these um, kind of less privileged um, of youth of color, Latino youth, um, I just found like inspiration working with them and like energy working with them. And, and from, you know, from there, I, that's, I mean, basically every summer in between school and even when I'm at school, I've been involved in some kind of educational work. Uh, this last summer, I was in San Rafael in the Bay Area um, working with an education program called Bell, Building Educated Learners for Life. Figure, you were just telling us about working in a summer program called Bell. Yeah, in, um, in San Rafael, California. And in the class, basically, we were talking about hip-hop history, um, its political significance, uh, and focusing on kind of identity building for each of our students. Um, and, you know, every two to three weeks, focusing on a single element of the four elements of hip-hop, which is graffiti, uh, DJ, MC, or the rapper, and then B-boy, B-girl, the dancer. And, I mean, theater arguably being the fifth element of that as well. Okay, so um, let's talk about some theater. I want to ta- start talking about mixed, the ra- mixed race mixtape. It's directed at youth and youth of color. It strives to reimagine the stage and how society engages with traditional theater spaces and include historically marginalized communities. Who are those communities, and, and why do you believe they've been, and how have they been marginalized? Um, I think those communities really include. Um, any historically oppressed groups, so thinking like uh, Latinos, African Americans, even maybe LGBTQ communities, um, I think theater historically has been very white and very male, kind of centric. Thinking about you know Shakespeare, I mean, um, every other play is a Shakespeare play, and I think at least how it's been put on, and the only reason I know otherwise is because I've you know worked in theater and and you know gone through this as well. That, that there is space for um, other types of theater as well as other communities that can be involved in that. But I think on face value, you think of like, oh, you want to do a play. A lot of communities, especially ones that are coming from areas where, you know, maybe their drama program has been cut and they haven't had access to theater and really had access to teachers or educators or mentors that are opening them up to theater that includes them in the narrative. And I think that's maybe important to include as well, that regardless of it being you know, Shakespeare, it's more that a lot of theater that's made in this country is speaking from a particular narrative uh, and, and uh, in a, speaking certain stories that doesn't include, uh, I think, young people, but more specifically, young, black and brown, Asian, other youth of color in the United States and their experience. And then even more aesthetically, maybe there's nothing that has to do with like hip hop. You know, these musicals are very, uh, you know, rock based at best and even, yeah, I mean, it's accessibility, you know, and also ticket prices. I mean, going to like a, um, a Broadway show is super expensive and even off-Broadway shows can be, you know, $75 a ticket. And a lot of these, you know, young people and 
don't have the money to afford that. You know, I don't have the money to afford that. Like, I don't want to go to a Broadway show and spend 150 bucks for kind of like a mediocre ticket. Uh, I want to create theater that's accessible. And especially if it's theater that you can't relate to as far as your experience or your identity. That exactly. You outside of. So I want to talk a little bit about the term ambiguously brown. <laughs> Where does it come from? Um, I actually developed the term myself in this play. Um, one of my professors, Kimberly Chang, <laughs> gave me this book that is by this uh, mixed African-American writer. And she had a bunch of different ways of describing mixed people that were mixed with black. And it was kind of a, it was a, it was all satirical. Um, but uh, so, and it kind of ridiculous as well. So like Tiger Woods, for example, when people asked him what he was, when he was kind of really coming up, he answered cobbly knee Asian, which is kind of this combination of Caucasian, black, Indian, and Asian. And people were really kind of flustered by that and, and you know, didn't understand and wanted him to like elaborate and say what he like identifies with. People were trying to get people to pick sides and, you know, pick teams really. Well, I don't know why or do, but we'll get into that later. Um, and I, I just through these multiple things, just kind of understanding messing with identity, kind of like, you know, thinking about checking the box, but even like scratching the box out and writing something ridiculous and kind of, you know, confusing the whole system up. Um, and also understanding, you know, uh, experience and and ambiguously brown kind of came to me as this term that really hit home with these different experiences and experiences came first thinking about like walking around the street and getting asked like where are you from and then being like well yeah i'm from from california it's like no no no. i mean i mean like where are you really from it's like well southern california and they're like i'm sorry uh like you know what kind of blood do you have which really is just like asking like why aren't you white or like what country are you from and just like i'm from you know um and that experience being uh because i'm ambiguously brown um they, they obviously know that i'm not white uh, but they're not sure what kind of not white and so they want to know and it kind of hit home for me. So before we get into the details of Mixed Race Mixtape, I want to talk a little bit about your experience at Hampshire. How did yeah. you end up at Hampshire College, and are you glad that you did? <laughs> oh, Hampshire, wow, it's about to end. Um, my mother went to Hampshire. Uh, it was one of the first classes, came in fall of, I think, 1973, and the school had only been open for three years. I mean, it's a super uh, progressive school, um, kind of creating your own major, your own path of education, uh, as well as there's no grades and narrative evaluations. You have really close kind of connection with your teachers. And those are all things for me, uh, for someone who did well in high school, but felt unchallenged and also bored and kind of like I, I got the system was just kind of, I don't know, very uh, prescribed. And I wanted something that was more independent and uh, had room for exploration, especially since going into college, I really had no idea what I wanted to study. I, I remember being interested in environmental studies and business. God, what a change. And so was it also a big change going to the East Coast socially? Was that a change for you from Southern California? I mean, God, yeah. New England is 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 uh, not as diverse as home, let's say, and specifically where we're at, which has been uh, named the Tofu Curtain, uh, a very progressive uh, very white uh, area, very progressive in quotes too. And I think coming here was definitely culture shock. I mean, weather aside, interactions with people were weird. This is the first time I was taken out of 
kind of a comfortable space. And thinking about transitions, a lot of it is, you know, moving away from a place where you have a safety net, you're familiar and you're comfortable. Um, and then into, you know, a new place where you kind of have to find comfort in whatever communities that is. And through that is exploration and through that is failure as well. So, you know, hanging out with people that really like I was not jiving with as well as like professors that didn't quite click with exactly like my attitude or what I was going for. Um, I did get a lot of these questions. Uh, one of my pieces in Mixed Race and Mixed Day, if I can just talk about it really quickly, is called First Encounters, which is about kind of my first experiences being this ambiguously brown, non-white uh, person in this expensive you know, uh, liberal arts, um, non, you know, non-traditional liberal arts school. And, and a lot of that is meeting people from like Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, where, you know, I was the first Mexican they've met, and, which is ridiculous. You know, one of my good friends, I was, he says, I'm the first Latino he's ever met. And I was just like, that blows my mind. Um, so I think there's a lot of, um, hmm, bridges to build and cross. Um, and, yeah. Okay, so, so now let's talk about Mixed Race Mixtape. Through the eyes of Fig, a young mixed race Latino man, the show examines how youth of color grapple with their identities and reflects the experiences of those whose lives are impacted by race every day. Fig conveys what it's like being ambiguously brown. He highlights the conflicts between how public and private spaces influence the performance of self. The audience shares his encounters with police, teachers, peers, family, otherwise mundane social encounters, and experiences that shape the development of his identity. So it's a, a coming-of-age story and, and fusing theater, live instrumental, hip-hop, spoken word, dance. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've got a lot going on. What, what was that like? <laughs> oh, God. I have such a problem letting go of things. You know, uh, So I choosing, it was hard to choose it what it was going to be? So we just yeah. throw it all in? <laughs> you know, I was like, I want to dance. I want there to be movement. Like, I need to rap. Like, I also don't do spoken word and, like, has to be theater. But, like, I love live instrumental hip-hop. That's, like, what I mostly do with my own groups is with live band. And also just having the band able to use for, you know, performers. Um, <laughs> I remember my, my, my committee and a few of my mentors would be like, Fig, you don't have to do all of them. I mean, you can put things in the back burner. I'm like, but I, but I want to. And, and actually seeing... Um, a show titled Word Becomes Flesh, Letters to My Unborn Son, which by Mark Muthi Joseph, who's definitely one of the pioneers within kind of the hip-hop theater world. Um, and I saw that he did in- include everything. It was, uh, uh, he didn't have live instrumental hip-hop, but instead he had a DJ and everything else, you know, spoken word and rap and a lot of movement, a lot of theater, uh, an ensemble of five actors and the DJ and, and inspired me. And I'm like, I don't want to make the sacrifice. These are all things that are important to me and are so important in expressing the story in my, in my own identity. Um, I think there's a lot in between the lines and that's just an aesthetic as in movement, which talks about my identity as well. And, and kind of my, uh, my mix of hip hop, but like through live instrumentals. I want to start and, with, with one of the sentences that's in your, your, um, explanation of of the piece and it Mm -hmm. says how public the conflicts between how public and private spaces influence the performance of self i just wonder if you might go in a little more depth about what that means to you and what that meant inside the the performance piece uh yeah (laughs) performance of self um 
just thought that I was think, an interesting wording of performance of self and that this conflict of identity somehow creates, instead of one's just authentic self being expressed daily in the world, that there's some sort of sense of a, of a performance of self. I might be reading misreading into something. but Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think you're um, on, or, on to, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, what you're saying hits home, I think. To me, it was interesting, too, the difference between public and private. But we're, we're going to like you stew on that for a little bit. And we'll come back to that. Um, I want to talk about the, the interactive element and in, in the non-traditional experience of the theater piece. And That's you nice. said you, you'd had some – I was going to ask you if you'd previously had any experience of a performance like this. And, and you had. So you'd had enough to know mm-hmm. that it was doable. And so this was a, a thesis project. Um, where did the name come from? Did that come at the beginning or at the end? I think it came even before the beginning. <laughs> I mean, just aesthetically, both the words are double rhymes. <laughs> so I was just into that. And also thinking about mixed race <clears throat> really is kind of, I think, a large population of whom I'm speaking to is mixed race. Um, and also I want to take the term mixed race and retranslate it or really kind of open it up to include a larger community of people who's uh, not necessarily have one parent who's one race and one parent who's the other race, uh, but more understanding people who are coming from multicultural, multilingual, mixed class households and kind of, you know, <clears throat> uh, monoracial people who are growing up, you know, monoracial people of color who are growing up in, you know, middle class, upper class areas. And because of that, are struggling with ideas of authenticity of self, you know, may hold comments like, oh, you're just really white, you know, you sound white. Or, you know, when in reality, they're, they're definitely not. And to some extent in those areas, it's even more, uh, even more seen what their identity is because they stick out even more so. And kind of interactions with police and other people are, are um, put to the extreme because they're the kind of the outlier in the community. And I really, yeah. And so thinking about mixed race, for me, I wanted to take the term and then through the show, kind of like open it up and retranslate it, but also understanding that for what I'm talking about, um, mixed race is kind of like the root of everything. Um, yeah, I just hit home and it sounded good and just it rings and had all the elements. Yeah, yeah. Well, also mixtape. Thinking about like within like the rapper lingo, hip hop lingo, it's like I just dropped my first mixtape, which basically means like a mixtape is a collection of different songs that maybe you've recorded over instrumentals that weren't yours, that were somewhere else's, you know, uh, famous beats from other rappers, and you've like put it out for free, and you're just like, this is you, you know, your first first album, first recording, trying to like get out there, trying to get your name, Putting trying to your get your stamp it. on something that already exists. Exactly. Just showing like your lyrical ability. And then from there, people are like, oh, word, like here's an original beat. Or like, you know, you start making your own beat, just start working with a band. So like this mixed race mixtape, this is my, my putting myself out there. So I want to remind the audience, since they may have forgotten by this time, that this is just a college thesis project. I don't mean just in that belittling it in any way. I mean that it is an incredible performance that you created within the structure of your college thesis project. Tell us <laughs> a little bit about what that experience was like, the, the, from idea to sort of the challenge of putting it on, what were the hardest aspects, the, the most enjoyable aspects, and, and was it a collaborative effort? I mean, definitely. Uh, I think... It was extremely collaborative in the theater world. It really is like a team effort. Um, I owe a lot to my uh, director and uh, currently a co-artistic director of my tour, uh, Jarrell Watkins, um, and kind of him being with me 
uh, <laughs> throughout all the creation. And he was even working with me when I was workshopping and writing it. You know, I'd go over pieces with him and he'd give me feedback. And through the entire summer, I'd send him drafts and he'd send me back notes. And, um, and Martin Hutchinson as well, who co-directed it, who's a little bit more grounded in the theater world. And Jarrell being more grounded in kind of the content as well as the spoken word and hip-hop aesthetic, which was really needed for me and kind of that guidance and having someone who was coming from a similar background um, to work with and work off of. Um, and definitely everyone else involved too. I mean, the band. And so, yeah, and, you have a band, you have music. Yeah. Did you write, are those original scores that go throughout the piece? Yeah. Um, in the original uh, show that I put on at Hampshire College, uh, it was probably about 80% original, maybe two or three live covers or kind of live trans, you know, live um, translations of hip hop beats that had been made, you know, on the computer. And I think that definitely my interaction with the band was the most difficult part because I brought in, you know, I had a lot of requ- you know requirements. I had a lot of a uh, vision. Yeah, vision for who the cast could be. And I think in my area, which I've explained, is is lacking diversity, but also is is hard to find people who play music, you know, play it well, have some you know, backing in, in the jazz aesthetic or live hip hop, uh, can dedicate two to three, you know, three hour rehearsals a week and then, you know, two weeks of performance. Um, because these are also college students and exactly. presumably working on their theses as well. Yeah, yeah, doing it for free. Uh, people who are, are kind of can connect to the content, who are a group of, you know, all POC uh, students of color, uh, ambiguously brown musicians. And, um, and then on top of that, people who are familiar with the theater space. But I had to make so many sacrifices because I had to get who I could get, you know. And I was working with people from, you know, first through fourth years, people who were in the middle of their Division three as well and putting on their thesis, other people who are, you know, starting this was their first year at Hampshire College and were just trying to get out there, people who had never interacted with the theater space at all, so they had no idea about the etiquette, the hierarchy, um, organization, kind of expectations. Um, my show from – I started – my show went up October 17th. Tech week was October 10th, and I started rehearsals September 2nd. So I had five weeks to rehearse this show with a bunch of people who had never been to theater space before and had created a piece of theater because, you know, thinking about the play, it's not just, you know, a live show where it's like song, song, song. There's a movement in there, um, and the band and the whole ensemble's transitions and collective movement between them is super important, so everyone has to be kind of, you know, head on a swivel and, and in the piece and in character and so opposed a, to... They're on stage the entire time. The yeah, they're on stage the and entire so time. And so there another element of stage direction and also choreographing dances. Was that something that you were involved with as well in that aspect? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I uh, definitely have had a, a good amount of background or I guess informal but good amount of background and movement. I had a friend, uh, Sabina Mo, come in as the kind of choreographer and she was working with me specifically on movement and dance. And she uh, choreographed uh, a piece in the show where the mother and father of the main character come out and dance. So, yeah, I was yeah. just I was wondering a little bit about the choreography, the other element of, of the piece. Um, yeah. And so uh, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about that one element of the show, that particular dance. You could tell us a little more about it and awesome. a little bit more about what your performance experience was like. And after that, let's move on to uh, the tour, organizing the tour and what the tour is all about. Great. So this awesome. Is Ellie Newman 
on its relationship. I'm here with Andrew Fig Figueroa. We're talking about his thesis pro- project and soon to be national tour, Mixed Race Mixtape. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 89.3 FM Ketchum. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on Its Relationship. I'm here with Andrew Figueroa. We're talking about his thesis project and soon-to-be national tour of Mixed Race Mixtape. And, Andrew, we were just talking a little bit about the performance and putting it together, the one at Hampshire College. And you had mentioned, uh, I had asked about choreography, and you had mentioned a scene in the performance where there's a dance. And I wonder if you tell us a little bit about that scene. Yeah, so um, <laughs> in the original uh, show, it comes up right after this conversation um, that I'm having with my father in the song called Hey Dad. And at the very end, um, a couple comes onto the dance floor and really what's happening there is a flashback to a memory of, of me watching my parents dance. And through that, this is kind of the, uh, I mean, really climax of the show that kind of bring in a climax or, or thinking about where like, the issue is really established and this divide and is bringing in like both of the parents' background and what happens is the parents come to the floor and they start dancing this kind of a, a choreographed salsa piece to the band and uh, the band fades out and I begin this kind of beatbox monologue um, spoken word piece about my parents' background in metaphor of them dancing. Um, and and you mentioned the divide. Is the divide yeah. between your parents? Is it between you and your parents? Is it the internal divide that you experience being mixed race? I mean, really, uh, yes to all three to some extent. Mostly, I mean, yeah, I, I think that the, the piece itself moves between those three. It begins at um, the divide of my parents coming from this very kind of like opposite cultures and that's in class and in culture and in ethnicity and language um, and then comes back to um, my own feeling of separation from them um, knowing that they will never know exactly my experience because I don't hold my identity is different from both of theirs um, as well as um, me feeling kind of uh, this aspect of division and splitness if you will um, just in kind of my everyday life and kind of the, the chorus, the frame it comes back to is um, kind of speaking about feeling like I'm off rhythm and I haven't learned the steps of my family and, and kind of, cre- you know, trying to figure that out. And was this a communication? Was this a conversation that was being had when you were a child or when you were a youth uh, among your family, a topic of, of race and the, the identity issue of, of these two very distinct cultures and, and all the other elements you mentioned? Was this something you guys were talking about? Um, uh, no. No. Uh, yeah, not, not, in a, not in a very conscious way. I mean, it was, yeah, there was very little conversation and a lot of action. I mean, I think just like understanding experience, you know, I was going to Mexico a lot and celebrating with my family, um, having my father and mother speak in Spanish, my father speak in Spanish and, you know, having like going to like these, you know, cultural gatherings of our friends and, you know, um, different neighborhoods around where we live, uh, you know, calling the abuelitos on, you know, their birthdays and them calling us and kind of different celebrations around Christmas time and, you know, a three Kings day, um, yeah. And, so was there a conversation yeah. among y- your parents and with you after they've seen they saw your show? Was this some, were they surprised by any elements of it? Do you feel, or did, <laughs> did, did they know you were having this experience? I don't think 
they knew that I was having it to this extent. Um, and I think that's because I didn't know that I was having it to I, this That extent. was going to be my next question. As I asked yeah, it, yeah. I thought, well, the, did he know he was having it? Yeah, yeah. I was always really aware of my identity. You know, I was always aware that, like, I was this Latino and had pride in being Mexican and, you know, knew that my mother was not, but also that she kind of felt close to that culture and, you know, speaks Spanish and lived in Mexico for 15 years. Um, but I was never really conscious that there was a split. And, you know, that kind of comes with moving to a new space and for the first time being questioned about identity. And did the memories get reframed? I'm thinking about a moment in your piece when you talk about being with your mother who's blonde and blue-eyed and being asked, and I don't have it exactly right, but being Mm. asked by someone whether she was your nanny or how you were related. And I'm wondering if that got um, re-focused when you were putting the play together or if if there was a moment at at that moment where you were like, huh, that's, that's odd. Oh, in, in what do you mean? Just like thinking about that experience? Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think diving back into a lot of things that are happening when I was young, I was definitely reevaluating like experience after experience being like, was that because of this? Or was it like, because, you know, they didn't, I, yeah, like understanding them. Because I think when I was younger, some of the aggressions, microaggressions, kind of um, racial interactions, I experienced I wasn't able to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. Um, so Do now, after like, him in that way. yeah, so, you know, after moving through, you know, a, a good amount of theory at college, as well as beginning to have these conversations out loud and putting down in the paper and then rereading them, uh, it definitely, I mean, like, you know, they, they were like, oh, whoa, these are very real and like happened. Yeah, and I mean, you got a frame now. Yeah, a definitely. context. Yeah, a context. context. All right, so you are organizing a national tour. The new team includes professional producer and designer Allison Smart, who's going to join us for the remainder of the interview, musical director Matali Banda, and artistic director Jorel Watkins. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you all came together. Um, Well, uh, Jorel Watkins uh, was a student at Hampshire College and originally... Uh, me and him were co-signers of MOCA, which is a Men of Color Alliance on campus, which is a uh, club for... We were, we were co-signers. We were the presidents of um, this group that was for uh, self-identified men of color um, who met once a week and just kind of you know, talked and put on different events and um, just a safe space for us. Um, and then from there, I had seen him in a few performance pieces, uh, seen him do spoken word and just had, you know, really appreciate him as an artist and as, you know, a person kind of as some of his uh, missions and goals. Um, and, and then this, I asked... I'm sorry, I just wondered, was this right after the, the finish, was this something that you all decided, okay, we, we, this can't end, this needs to go somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think that definitely me and Jarrell, we were living together and we wanted to take this on tour and we just wanted something after college to really move on and we were confident with the show's ability and confident with the ability to grow. I mean, it's definitely been edited a lot. We've rewritten all the music, rewritten a lot of the script, taken out some pieces, added some new ones. Um, and, um, and and was that hard for you? Was that sort of, uh, were you, you said you had a tough time sometimes letting go or, or choosing, was it hard to let go oh of God. the original? <laughs> so hard. Allison, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hi, Thank you for joining hello. us. Yeah, thanks for having did me. You, did you notice that that maybe was hard for Anne, uh, big to oh, do? Oh, definitely. We spend a lot of time. You can't see it because it's radio, <laughs> but there's a whole wall of post-it notes over here where we spent several 
hours and days rearranging different pieces of the show to find um, a more resonant emotional arc for people outside of Hampshire um, and for the new audiences that we're we're trying to bring the show to. Um, And it's still not final. We'll definitely make some more edits in the actual rehearsal room this summer. Um, There's a lot to be said about how something feels in the moment when you see things put back to back. And it was definitely challenging. Um, it was helpful that I wasn't as connected with the first iteration of the show um, to kind of be like, well, you know, this is a really nice piece, um, but it doesn't actually make sense in the context. Or, or you've already said what you're saying in this piece, and we should think about getting rid of it to shorten the, the show. Yeah, I definitely think I uh, <clears throat> had trouble letting go of pieces because there were pieces that I felt were really strong. <clears throat> but like Allison said weren't necessarily for this piece. And it's autobiographical, Um, so they were actually parts of your life. So it's, I'm sure, made that a little more emotional to let them go. I want to talk a little bit about the the mission statement going forward. And uh, there is quite a bit of discussion on your website about it. And I'm going to just take from there and and talk about elements. Um, The first part is to create entertaining, political, and accessible theater and reimagine how youth of color are represented in media. And I'm wondering, as uh, a young adult if and, and as a child, you felt media was was an accurate reflection of your experience and, and personal identity. Definitely. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> it, it was hard to find my face, you know, in magazines and, and TV shows. And I think, you know, going to, you know, quote unquote, uh, factual media being news, which is hardly factual a lot of the time, uh, the way that they would talk about youth of color, Latinos, you know, immigration people coming over the border or, anchor you know, babies. anchor babies, black and brown youth. I definitely was, felt like it was a, a, a damaging space and a tra- uh, traumatizing space. Um, and, and, and you say that kids of color have to look harder. And so they are looking maybe more intently it toward media for finding a sense of identity and that when they do discover it, once, once they can kind of weed it out, that there's no emotional complexity to it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, the really um, simultaneously great and unfortunate thing about being white is that we don't have to look at all. You look at any show on television and you don't even register that the people on the show are a reflection of your skin color, your experience, your class, your background. Um, and that's a real privilege to have. I'm white for the people listening. <laughs> and, um, and that definitely is a difference in experience that um, Fig and I have. And I think that it's... And, and really Allison, t- was it something you were aware of growing up, this sense of media and the influence on shaping identity? Or was it really a question that, that you started to think about later on and maybe being involved in this project? Um, I definitely got deeper into it later on, especially when I started going to Hampshire. Uh, Fig and I went to the same college. But I grew up in the Unitarian Universalist Church. I started going there in sixth grade. And they really have um, really kind of intense program about spiritual identity. And through that, learning about um, racial identity, gender identity, sexual orientation. Um, so that was kind of like a, a great intro. <laughs> um, but we didn't really talk a lot about whiteness. UU is, um, is pretty white. And so again, another really big privilege that I had was 
walking to church and seeing tons of people like me um, and maybe talking about um, racism in a theoretical way, but not ever from a, a first person experience. Yeah. And, and uh, another element of it is uh, in the mission statement is to fill in the gaps in the national conversation about race by tackling big questions through a personal point of view. In what ways is the conversation incomplete? <laughs> so many ways. Yeah, so many ways. <laughs> I mean, I think one, uh, one major way is really that there hasn't been a, a racialized class conversation bringing in uh, class as culture. And I think culture in general and understanding how culture shapes identity and because of that, is you know is a a better way of how we talk about race opposed to someone's skin color, which is really just uh, not a real thing. Yes. I mean, it's, and not skin color is a real thing, but race is social construct Even connected um, with with identity, and especially when you have exactly. multiple identities. Exactly, which I think is yeah. really taking the conversation to another level. Yeah, yeah, and I think that one really great thing about mixed race mixtape is that it does specifically address the racial binary that we think about as Americans, which is you're white or you're black. And there's there's acknowledgement that there's in between that you know people are Asian or Latino or or mixed. But in terms of the larger conversation, if you look at you know especially a lot of the articles that are popping up right now, it's very focused on black and white and. That's not bad, but it's just a starting point, and we need to have a more complex conversation because people's identities are more complex than yeah. that. I think even within about, the binary about you know why this is is so important, and one um, element you have here in, in some of your language is that stereotyping defines cultural authenticity, and so much research. Lately, if we think, look, uh, Dr. Madeline Levine um, has a number of books out. The importance, especially for youth, to be able to have an authentic self and a sense of an authentic yeah. self. Within this extra challenge of a multiple identity and, a, you know, start looking for a race class connection and a, a pressure to assimilate, how much more difficult is, is this experience to be authentic? I mean, uh, I feel like at when it when <laughs> it's it's the challenge is coming from so many more sides, um, from people who you associate with or want to be associated by. Um, they're um, challenging your authenticity. You know, if uh, you think about it, maybe from um, a more uh, talked about uh, point of view. Let's talk about gender. Everybody you know, as two women, we each have ideas of what a woman is, you know, wh whether that checklist is conscious or unconscious. And, um, and there's maybe the, a public one and a private one as well, which was something we talked about a little earlier in this interview. Exactly. Exactly. And if you start to add more quote unquote checklists to your identity, then you're not only trying to fulfill your own checklist, but you're also being judged by other people's checklists. Those don't match. They don't overlap. Or maybe they do, maybe they don't. And those, um, the experiences of, of bumping up against those rubrics, those checklists in real life and real time and different spaces is very challenging and can be very traumatic. And I think taking it back to the conversation of kind of the mixed race identity and thinking about coming from multiple sides with these checklists, they're being defined from um, an outside source from our communities, 
But because it's so ingrained in our culture, in our schools, in our media, it begins to, um, to some extent brainwash our own communities and we begin to police each other and police each other's authenticity, which really is kind of the whole goals of why they display these damaging stereotypes and have these checklists so we can then, you know, we're kind of marginalizing ourselves. And, um, and then as a response, we want to create political power. So we're creating these kind of very uh, confined identities so people can like fall under it and, you know, uh, come together and have pride, but with pride comes power, but then with all this as well comes exclusion and you're not room to grow. So we're continuously having to have this battle with ourselves and with everyone else to define who we are and, and you know, have this identity to claim and this, this authentic self to, you know, live with and, and be able to have confidently. And I think the message of Mixed Race Mixtape, or rather the uh, the journey that we follow the main character on and, and hope the audience goes on as well. And it doesn't come to a definitive end, but, but the journey is about um, being comfortable in your own self and also being comfortable in defining your own authenticity mm-hmm. um, without falling prey to that cycle that Fig was just talking about of, of self of policing within your own community in response to the rubric that is put out by mainstream media, by news, by other people who aren't in your um, racial or class yeah. or communities culture. Of power. Yeah. So you're being policed from within and from without, and they might yeah. not be holding you to the same rules and standards. Exactly. Definitely not. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about more the um, this, the performance. And you are attempting or have created and attempted to create a performance that's engaging and accept, accessible to a diverse audience. Yeah. Um, how We talked a little bit about theater itself not being very accessible at this point to the masses, mm-hmm. and you are trying to resolve that as far as access to venues being more affordable and also a, a wide variety of venues. So we're going to talk a little bit about your thinking on that. Yeah, definitely. So I think the uh, show itself is super malleable in the sense of space that it can um, Occupy. I mean, uh, we're interested in hitting up cultural spaces, um, you know, music halls, traditional theater spaces, non-traditional theater spaces, uh, outside. I mean, we even had a conversation about doing it in, uh, you know, um, detention centers, um, prisons would be super. I I mean, I don't know how easy that would be, especially with the prison system not um, welcoming the arts. Yeah, welcoming the arts. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, we definitely. We love to do it anywhere. I mean, well, I think, and I think another piece of the accessibility is not—it's not just the ease of access or or um, the financial accessibility. It's also the environment that you create when you walk into a theater. Yeah. Um, there, mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that theater has become so inaccessible, besides just like absorbent ticket costs, which are, by the way, not the fault of the theater makers. It's just the nature of the industry. You have to keep creating bigger and better and that costs money. Um, and yeah, bigger and better to compete with all of the other types of media. But anyway, the accessibility isn't just about financial or location. It's also about, um, feeling welcome, not feeling like you have to, you know, dress a certain way. Some people think of the theaters, you have to, you have to go out and, and it's your, you know, Sunday best or whatever. Um, we want it to be informal. We want it to be welcoming. Um, Community-based. I mean, I, I think also what's really important about our show, what we do, is there's an aspect of involvement before the, you know, play actually starts. And that's in kind of the pre-show music. It, in this newest version is the band is actually out there live and we... And I'll be there as kind of the MC, inviting you know young MCs, 
to come and cipher, to drop a verse, you know, any kind of dancers that want to come, people want to perform spoken word or, uh, um, you know, a local musician who wants to sit in. And also at the end of every one of our shows, we offer a space to have a talk back. And as well as that, we offer workshops. And, and what uh, will those look like? What will the talk, what would be the goal of the talk back and, and the workshops? I mean, really just allowing people to have space to answer, I mean, to ask questions for us to answer questions, continue the dialogue about the content, about the show. Um, and I think, you know, it's one thing for me to come out there and then like say a story and then leave, you know, but really to come out here, you know, uh, interact with the group, make a connection, uh, tell my story and then have space after that for us to really kind of connect that story to other people's stories. Exactly. I think when you go to theater, um, again, back to the welcoming environment, there's this expectation that. Uh, okay, you come in, you get your ticket, you maybe buy a concession, you go and you sit in your seat, and the lights go down, and then the theater piece, and then there's an intermission, and you get up, and then you do it again, and then it's over, and you walk away. And that it happens and, apart from the viewer, for, for both the artist right. and the viewer, that and so, there's a separation. Exactly, and the great thing about, about music and theater is that you can give voice to the audience as well, and the yeah. audience becomes a character um, in the piece and really can can shape it's more than just you know is the audience into it it's literally are they responding are they yeah. singing the song with you are they staying for the talk back and sharing their experiences um, and the things that they felt from watching your show and and that in itself is like a beautiful thing to, yeah, to share your story and hear and hear how it affected other people, and allow them to share their own stories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, so and much to be internalized, right? That the personal narrative yeah. now becomes in both directions. Exactly, and yeah. throughout the show, there's you know, like there's back and forth call and responses that are happening, communication directly with the audience, uh, coming out into the audience, and really one of my goals as a performer is breaking down the power dynamic. And, you know, that I'm on the stage and the light's on me and you're down here. So you have to listen to what I say opposed to, like, this is a collective experience that we can have. <laughs> so I want to talk about, we just have a little bit of time left for the show. Before we end, I want to talk a little bit about another dominant narrative. And that is whether art is a legitimate and important career path. And I know that's something <laughs> that, that you both are have struggled with and will continue to struggle with in the next few months and years and maybe a lifetime. Um, <laughs> Definitely. And so one purpose of the play is to hone and promote a financially sustainable model for art making. Yeah. How, do you see it anywhere in existence now? Um, I'm sure it does. I'm sure a sustainable mode does exist. And right now the sustainable mode is kind of like mega donors that front money that are producers and they put money into a show and it's big and maybe it makes money. Um, and then can keep going. That's kind of like the traditional Broadway thing. Or it closes, and that's not sustainable, you know. Um, but I think that um, one of the models that I've started to explore is this idea of seed money. So the idea that we get the show developed, and we crowdfund that. So it's a democratic way of raising money. People are, with their money, saying we think this is a worthwhile project. And then we are able to book enough shows and merchandise and additional fundraising if needed to sustain the, the show for as long as we are able to do it. But I don't think that's the answer. I think that it's going to take a serious reevaluation of our society's views on the values of art. And I think that this show speaks to that really well because 
mixed race mixtape isn't trying to solve the quote unquote race problem. <laughs> like that is absolutely impossible. What we're trying to do is, um, especially for, you know, eight people. Um, but what we're trying to do is start conversations and start story, start story sharing and, and start an empathetic space that is like a ripple, you know, and it extends beyond the theater space, um, which goes back to those workshops and dialogues. And in doing that, not only are we talking about something that's really valuable and timely, but we're also creating a value for art that like, oh, I learned this thing about myself by going to theater. And so many people don't have that experience. And it's such a valuable one. As theater artists, you know, we wrote like a love letter to other theater makers about why we think they should support our show. And that was the crux of it, that like, we remember the first thing that really brought us in and we want to give that experience to other people. Yeah, and definitely just to continue kind of the original question again, I mean, understanding the importance of art in our culture right now and how it's not just, you know, like, oh, art's fun and like exciting, but really how much of a necessity it is. I mean, thinking about things that are happening with Black Lives Matter, Baltimore, Ferguson, you know, what has art done in that? You know, people who put out songs, uh, graffiti artists, um, even like t-shirt designs, uh, uh, posters, and like, you know, theater works. How are these things really shaping the movement and and giving voice to the movement in a different way that may be more accessible to an audience that needs to hear it, uh, who may not be able to be out there in the streets? Or how do we as artists explore activism? Like, what is our, our... our verb, you know, uh, not all of us um, explore activism through um, marching or protests. Um, some of us do it through uh, graffiti art and, uh, and you know, uh, lectures and education and theater and hip-hop theater. So just really understanding the importance of art, its need currently, and, the, you know, in the, for me as um, the writer and for everyone else involved, it's like this is how we know to kind of give voice and, and to be activists and be artists and be educators is through this work. And I, I can't t- tell you uh, how many times, whether it's I've been marching in a protest or I've been um, creating art in a public place where people have said, go back to school, <laughs> as if I haven't gone to school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or as if, as if I needed to, to get another degree in something other than art because art wasn't worthwhile to society. Yeah. Um, and that's... that's uh, just wrong. <laughs> it's just well, fundamental. And it is. There was recently a, a, a story on NPR about the brain and humanity's connection with art and personal narrative and that we are wired to connect with personal narrative and art is expression in all forms of personal narrative, meaningful it's art. No, it's no coincidence that people like going to bars and talking about what they did that day or this funny thing that happened to them when they, you know, dot, dot, dot. We love telling stories about ourselves, and we get huge amounts of enjoyment from hearing stories about other people. And often we walk away from those stories learning something new, whether it was a fun fact or something deeper than that. And so what's different from putting on a piece where instead of one-on-one, it's 50 on eight, you know, or 100 or 1,000 people get to have that. that and, and opening that conversation to people that up until now have been excluded. From having exactly. that experience. And yes. so what are your hopes going forward for each of you for Mixed Race Mixtape? Where would you like to see it go and where do you want to go personally with it? Do you want me to start and you can end? <laughs> yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah, so my, uh, my hopes are 
I'll start with the, the more pragmatic ones as production manager. My hope is to um, be able to make the show financially sustainable, to reach our fundraising goals so that I can, as the, the budget person, afford to pay all of our wonderful artists a fair wage for the work that they are putting in. It's not just fun times playing drums. These people yeah. study this and they're professional musicians. Listen, how can people participate? Uh, could you give us some contact information for people that would like to find out more or get involved in some way? Absolutely. So the best way to find out about Mixed Race Mixtape is going to our website, which is www.mixedracemixtape.com. And that's M-I-X-E-D-R-A-C-E. M-I-X-T-A-P-E dot com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and our link to our fundraiser is on our website and as well as a, a contact form, please send us an email about what you heard on the show if you had something to say or another question that we didn't answer and we'd be happy to respond. All right, and Fig, what are your hopes for the show going forward? My vision is that we can really book as many shows as possible and start this dialogue with as many people as possible that my audiences are filled with, uh, at the end of the show, excited, young, diverse audiences that really kind of want to continue the conversation, who want to attend our workshops, who really got something from the work, and then um, hopefully then, like, spark them to do something the same. I mean, also with me and my work, like, one of my goals for reactions are people who then want to start exploring like how they can express identity and perform identity through kind of the hip-hop aesthetic the hip-hop lens uh, theater and i think just in general and, and I'm what, do you, what do you feel you're excited what do you feel you've learned and this is a, a unfairly large question to throw at you at the end but what do you <laughs> feel that you've learned about your identity or come to terms with as far as your identity through the process of creating and performing this piece? I think a larger confidence to not have to, I mean, to be able to be like just who I am in all aspects and, and claim and feel close to everything that's influenced who I am without neglecting anything and feeling authentic um, with whatever group and also understanding what people. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, this question is, is, is difficult because, I mean, like Allison said earlier, the show definitely, like, this is like a lifelong process. Like, I haven't figured everything out yet. I think with me, I've just been able to say it, which is a huge step. And that's really going back to the, the question before this. My goal is to give people the ability and the space for them just to say it and, 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 and confront their own privileges and own oppressions and, and just be able to put it on the page and then say it out loud in front of an audience, in front of a lot of audiences. And that's what I want to do. And every time it's a little more and more freeing that I've been able to just confidently claim who I am, tell my story, my experience, and um, share it with everyone else. All right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today on its relationship. It was a pleasure speaking with both of you. Thank yeah, you, thank you so, so much. much. And good luck. Thanks. Until I see you all again. Until I see y'all again Until I see y'all again Lately, more than ever, I have missed community But my love for most of y'all is individuals So maybe I miss the potential of one The ultimate squad unity Usually I don't fool to be someone I'm not